0: chapter 23 of the wrecker this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org reading done by jules harlock the wrecker by robert louis stevenson chapter 23 part 1 the budget of the currency lass before noon on the 26th of November, there cleared from the port of Sydney the schooner currency lass. The owner, Norris Carthew, was on board in the somewhat unusual position of mate. The master's name purported to be William Kirkup. The cook was a Hawaiian boy, Joseph Amalu, and there were two hands before the mast, thomas Hayden and Richard Hempstead the latter chosen partly because of his humble character partly because he had an odd-job man's handiness with tools the currency lass was bound for the South Sea islands and the first of all for butaritari in the gilberts on a register but it was understood about the harbour that her cruise was more than half a pleasure trip a friend of the late Grant Sanderson, of Auchentroon and Kilcarty, might have recognized in that tall-masted ship the transformed and recrescent dream, and the Lloyd surveyor, had the services of such a one been called in requisition, must have found abundant subject of remark. For time during her three years in action had eaten deep into the dream and her fittings, she had sold, in consequence, a shade above her value as old junk, and the three adventurers had scarce been able to afford even the most vital repairs. The rigging, indeed, had been partly renewed, and the rest set up. All Grant Sanderson's old canvas had been patched together into one decently serviceable suit of sails. Grant Sanderson's mast still stood— and might have wondered at themselves i haven't a heart to tap them captain wicks used to observe as he squinted up their height or patted their rotundity and as rotten as our foremast was an accepted metaphor in the ship's company the sequel rather suggests it may have been sounder than was thought but no one knew for certain, just as no one except the captain appreciated the dangers of the cruise. The captain, indeed, saw with clear eyes and spoke his mind aloud, and though a man of an astonishing hot-blooded courage, following life and taking its dangers in the spirit of a hound upon the slot, he had made a point of a big whaleboat. "'Take your choice,' he had said either new masts and rigging or that boat i simply ain't going to sea without the one or the other chicken coops are good enough no doubt and so is a dinghy. but they ain't for joe and his partners had been forced to consent and saw six-and-thirty pounds of their small capital vanish in the turn of a hand all four had toiled the best part of six weeks getting ready and though Captain Wicks was of course not seen or heard of, a fifth was there to help them, a fellow in a bushy red beard, which he would sometimes lay aside when he was below, and who strikingly resembled Captain Wicks in voice and character. As for Captain Kirkup, he did not appear till the last moment, when he proved to be a burly mariner, bearded like Abu Ben-Adhim all the way down the harbour and through the heads. His milk-white whiskers blew in the wind and were conspicuous from shore. But the currency lass had no sooner turned her back upon the lighthouse than he went below for the inside of five seconds and reappeared clean-shaven. So many doublings and devices were required to get to sea, with an unseaworthy ship and a captain that was wanted nor might even these have sufficed, but for the fact that Hayden was a public character, and the whole cruise regarded with an eye of indulgence as one of Tom's engaging eccentricities. The ship, besides, had been a yacht before, and it came the more natural to allow her still some of the dangerous liberties of her old employment. A strange ship they had made of it, her lofty spars disfigured with patched canvas her panelled cabin fitted for a trade room with rude shelves and the life they led in that anomalous schooner was no less curious than herself amalu alone berthed forward the rest occupied staterooms camped upon the satin divans and sat down in grand sanderson's Parquetry smoking room to meals of junk and potatoes, bad of their kind and often scant in quantity. Hempstead grumbled. Tommy had occasional moments of revolt and increased the ordinary by a few haphazard tins or a bottle of his own brown sherry. But Hempstead grumbled from habit. Tommy revolted only for the moment, and there was underneath a real and general acquiescence in these hardships for besides onions and potatoes the currency lass may be said to have gone to sea without stores she carried two thousand pounds worth of assorted trade advanced on credit their whole hope and fortune it was upon this that they subsisted mice in their own granary they dined upon their future profits and every scanty meal was so much in the savings-bank. Republican as were their manners, there was no practical, at least no dangerous, lack of discipline. Wicks was the only sailor on board, there was none to criticise, and besides, he was so easy-going and so merry-minded that none could bear to disappoint him. Carthew did his best, partly for the love of doing it, partly for the love of the captain amalu was a willing drudge and even hemstead and hayden turned to upon occasion with a will tommy's department was the trade and trade-room he would work down in the hold or over the shelves of the cabin till the Sydney dandy was unrecognisable come up at last draw a bucket of sea-water bathe change and lie down on deck over a big sheaf of Sydney heralds and dead birds, or perhaps with a volume of Buckle's History of Civilization, the standard work selected for that cruise. In the latter case, a smile went round the ship, for Buckle almost invariably laid his student out, and when Tom awoke again he was almost always in the humour for brown sherry. The connection was so well established that, a glass of buckle, or a bottle of civilization became current pleasantries on board the currency lass. Hemstead's province was that of repairs, and he had his hands full. Nothing on board but was decay in a proportion. The lamps leaked, so did the decks, door knobs came off in the hand, mouldings parted company with the panels, the pump declined to suck, and the defective bathroom came near to swamp the ship wicks insisted that all the nails were long ago consumed and that she was only glued together by the rust you shouldn't make me laugh so much tommy he would say i'm afraid i'll shake the stern-post out of her and as hampstead went to and fro with his tool-basket on an endless round of tinkering "'Wicks lost no opportunity of chafing him upon his duties. "'If you turn to at sailoring or washing paint "'or something useful now,' he would say, "'I could see the fun of it, "'but to be mending things that haven't no insides to them "'appears to me the height of foolishness. "'And doubtless these continual pleasantries "'helped to reassure the landsman "'who went to and fro unmoved.' under circumstances that might have daunted Nielsen. The weather from the outset splendid, and the wind fair and steady. The ship sailed like a witch. This currency, lass, is a powerful old girl, and has more complaints that I would care to put a name on," the captain would say, as he pricked the chart. But she could show her blooming heels to anything of her size in the western Pacific to wash decks relieve the wheel do the day's work after dinner on the smoking-room table and take in kites at night such was the easy routine of their life in the evening above all if tommy had produced some of his civilization yarns and music were the rule amalu had a sweet hawaiian voice and hemstead a great hand upon the banjo accompanied his own quavering tenor with effect. There was a sense in which the little man could sing. It was great to hear him deliver My Boy Tammy in Australian, And the words, some of the worst of the ruffian MacNeils, were hailed in his version with inextinguishable mirth. Where you have been a day, he would ask and answer himself i've been by burn and flowery byre meadow green and mountain gyre cardinal this young thing just come fryer her mammy it was accepted jest for all hands to greet the conclusion of this song with the simultaneous cry my word thus winging the arrow of ridicule with a feather from the singer's wing but he had his revenge with home sweet home and where is my wandering boy to-night ditties into which he threw the most intolerable pathos it appeared he had no home nor had he ever had one nor yet any vestige of a family except a truculent uncle a baker in newcastle north-south wales his domestic sentiment was therefore wholly in the air and expressed an unrealized ideal or perhaps of all his experiences this of the currency lass with its kindly playful and tolerant society approached it the most nearly it is perhaps because i know the sequel but i can never think upon this voyage without a profound sense of pity and mystery of the ship once the whim of a rich blackguard faring with her battered fineries and upon her homely errand across the plains of ocean and past the gorgeous scenery of dawn and sunset and the ship's company so strangely assembled so britishly chuckle-headed filling their days with chaff in place of conversation no human book on board with them except haydon's buckle and not a creature fit either to read or to understand it and the one mark of any civilized interest being when carthew filled in his spare hours with the pencil and the brush the whole unconscious crew of them posting in the meanwhile toward so tragic a disaster twenty-eight days out of sydney on christmas eve they fetched up to the entrance of the lagoon and plied all that night outside keeping their position by the lights of fishers on the reef and the outlines of the palms against the cloudy sky with the break of day the schooner was hoved to and the signal for pilot shone but it was plain her lights must have been observed in the darkness by the native fishermen and word carried to the settlement for a boat was already under way she came towards them across the lagoon UNDER A GREAT PRESS OF SAIL, LYING DANGEROUSLY LOW, SO THAT AT TIMES, IN THE HEAVIER PUFFS, THEY THOUGHT SHE WOULD TURN TURTLE, COVERED THE DISTANCE IN FINE STYLE, it UP SMARTLY ALONGSIDE, AND EMITTED A HAGGARD-LOOKING WHITE MAN IN PAJAMAS. GOOD MORNING, CAPTAIN, SAID HE, WHEN HE HAD MADE GOOD HIS ENTRANCE. I WAS TAKING YOU FOR A Fiji MAN OF WAR what with your flush decks and them spars. Well, gentlemen, all, here's wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year,' he added, and lurched against a stay. "'Why, you're never the pilot,' exclaimed Wicks, studying him with a profound disfavor. "'You've never taken a ship in. Don't tell me.' "'Well, I should guess I have,' returned the pilot. "'I'm Captain Dobbs, I am.' and when i take charge the captain of that ship can go below and shave but man alive you're drunk man cried the captain drunk repeated dobbs you can't have seen much life if you call me drunk i'm only just beginning come night i won't say i guess i'll be properly full by then but now i'm the soberest man in all big muggin it won't do, retorted Wicks, not for Joseph, sir. I can't have you piling up my schooner. All right, said Dobbs, lay and rot where you are, or take and go in and pile her up for yourself like the captain of the Leslie. That's business, I guess. Grudge me twenty dollars pilotage, and lost twenty thousand in trade and a brand new schooner. Rip the keel right off of her. "'And she went down in the inside of four minutes "'and lies in twenty fathom, trade and all. "'What's all this?' cried Wicks. "'Trade. What vessel was this, Leslie, anyhow?' "'Consigned to Cohen and company from Frisco,' returned the pilot, "'and badly wanted. "'There's a bark inside filling up for Hamburg. "'You see her spars over there. "'And there's two more ships due.' all the way from Germany. One in two months, they say, and one in three. Cohen and Company's agent, that's Mr. Topolus, has taken and lain down with the jaundice on the strength of it. I guess most people would, in his shoes. No trade, no copra, and 20 hundred tons of shipping due. If you've any copra on board, Captain, here's your chance. Topolis will buy, gold down, and give three cents. It's all found money to him, the way it is, whatever he pays for it. And that's what's come of going back on the pilot.' "'Excuse me one moment, Captain Dobbs. I wish to speak with my mate,' said the captain, whose face had begun to shine and his eyes to sparkle. "'Please yourself,' replied the pilot. "'You couldn't think of offering a man a nip, could you?' just to brace him up this kind of thing looks damned inhospitable and gives a schooner a bad name i'll talk about that after the anchor's down returned wicks and he drew carthew forward i say he whispered here's a fortune how much do you call that asked carthew i can't put a figure on it yet i daren't said the captain we might cruise twenty years and not find the match of it. And suppose another ship came in tonight. Everything's possible. And the difficulty is this, Dobbs. He's as drunk as a Marine. How can we trust him? We ain't insured. Worse luck. Suppose you took him aloft and got him to point out the channel, suggested Carthew. If he tallied at all with a chart and didn't fall out of the rigging, perhaps we might risk it well all's risk here returned the captain take the wheel yourself and stand by mind if there's two orders follow mine not his set the cook forward with the headsails, and the two others at the main sheet and see they don't sit on it with that he called the pilot they swarmed aloft in the fore-rigging and presently after there was balled down the welcome order to ease sheets and fill away at a quarter before nine o'clock on christmas morning the anchor was let go the first cruise of the currency lass had thus ended in a stroke of fortune almost beyond hope she had brought two thousand pounds worth of trade straight as a homing pigeon to the place where it was most required. And Captain Wicks, or rather Captain Kirkup, showed himself the man to make the best of his advantage. For hard upon two days he walked a veranda with Topolis, for hard upon two days his partners watched from the neighbouring public-house the field of battle, and the lamps were not yet lighted on the evening of the second before the enemy surrendered wicks came across to the sans souci as the saloon was called his face nigh black his eyes almost closed and all bloodshot and yet bright as lighted matches come out here boys he said and when there were some way off among the palms i hold twenty-four he added in a voice scarcely recognizable "'and doubtless referring to the venerable game of cribbage. "'What do you mean?' asked Tommy. "'I've sold the trade,' answered Wicks. "'Or, rather, I've sold only some of it, "'for I've kept back all the mess-beef "'and half the flour and biscuit. "'And, by God, we're still provisioned for four months. "'By God, it's as good as stolen.' "'My word!' cried Hemstead. "'But what have you sold it for?' gasped carthew the captain's almost insane excitement shaking his nerve let me tell it my own way cried wicks loosening his neck let me get at it gradual or i'll explode i've not only sold it boys i've wrung out a charter on my own terms to frisco and back on my own terms i made a point of it I fooled him first by making believe I wanted copra, which of course I knew he wouldn't hear of, couldn't, in fact, and whenever he showed fight I trotted out the copra, and the man dived. I would take nothing but copra, you see, and so I've got the blooming lot in specie, all but two short bills on Frisco, and the sum? well this whole adventure including two thousand pounds of credit cost us two thousand seven hundred and some odd that's all paid back in thirty days cruise we've paid for the schooner and the trade heard ever any man the match of that and it's not all for besides that said the captain hammering his words we've got thirteen blooming hundred pounds of profit to divide "'I bled him in four thou,' he cried in a voice that broke like a schoolboy's. For a moment the partners looked upon their chief with stupefaction, incredulous surprise their only feeling. Tommy was the first to grasp the consequences. "'Here,' he said, in a harsh business tone, "'Come back to that saloon. I've got to get drunk.' You must please excuse me, boys, said the captain earnestly. I daren't taste nothing. If I was to drink one glass of beer, it's my belief I'd have the apoplexy. The last scrimmage and the blooming triumph pretty nigh hand done me. Well, then, three cheers for the captain proposed Tommy. But Wicks held up a shaking hand. Not that either, boys, he pleaded. Think of the other Buffer, and let him down easy. If I'm like this, just fancy what Topolis is. If he heard us singing out, he'd have the staggers." As a matter of fact, Topolis accepted his defeat with a good grace, but the crew of the wrecked Leslie, who were in the same employment and loyal to their firm, took the thing more bitterly. Rough words and ugly looks were common once even they hooted captain wicks from the saloon veranda the currency lasses drew out on the other side for some minutes there had like to have been a battle in butari tari and though the occasion passed off without blows it left on either side an increase of ill feeling no such matter could affect the happiness of the successful traders Five days more the ship lay in the lagoon, with little employment for anyone but Tommy and the captain. for Fertopolis's natives discharged cargo and brought ballast. The time passed like a pleasant dream. The adventurers sat up half the night debating and praising their good fortune, or strayed by day in the narrow isle, gaping like cockney tourists and, on the first of the new year, the currency lass weighed anchor for the second time and set sail for Frisco, attended by the same fine weather and good luck. She crossed the doldrums with but small delay, on a wind and in ballast of broken coral. She outdid expectations, and, what added to the happiness of the ship's company, the small amount of work that fell on them to do was now lessened by the presence of another hand this was the boatswain of the leslie he had been on bad terms with his own captain had already spent his wages in the saloons of Butaritari, had wearied of the place and while all his shipmates coldly refused to set foot on board the currency lass he had offered to work his passage to the coast. He was a North of Ireland man, between Scotch and Irish, rough, loud, humorous and emotional, not without sterling qualities, and an expert and careful sailor. His frame of mind was different indeed from that of his new shipmates. Instead of making an unexpected fortune, he had lost a berth, and he was besides disgusted with the rations and really appalled at the condition of the schooner a stateroom door had stuck the first day at sea and mac as they called him laid his strength to it and plucked it from the hinges glory he said this ship's rotten i believe you my boy said captain wicks the next day the sailor was observed with his nose aloft "'Don't you get looking at these sticks,' the captain said, "'or you'll have a fit and fall overboard.' Mac turned towards the speaker with rather a wild eye. "'Why, I see what looks like a patch of dry rot up yonder "'that I bet I could stick my fist into,' said he. "'Looks as if a fellow could stick his head into it, don't it?' returned Wicks. "'But there's no good prying into things that can't be mended.' "'I think I was a currency ass to come on board of her,' reflected Mac. "'Well, I never said she was seaworthy,' replied the captain. "'I only said she could show her blooming heels to anything afloat. "'And besides, I don't know that it's dry-rot. "'I kind of sometimes hope it isn't. "'Here, turn to and heave the log. "'That'll cheer you up.' "'Well, there's no denying it. "'You're a holy captain.' said mac and from that day on he made but one reference to the ship's condition and that was whenever tommy drew upon his cellar here's to the junk trade he would say as he held out his can of sherry why do you always say that asked tommy i had an uncle in the business replied mac and launched at once into a yarn in which an incredible number of the characters were laid out as nice as you would want to see, and the oaths made up about two-fifths of every conversation. Only once he gave them a taste of his violence. He talked of it, indeed, often. I'm rather a violent man, he would say, not without pride, but this was the only specimen. Of a sudden he turned on Hempstead in the ship's waist, knocked him against the foresail boom, then knocked him under it, and had set him up and knocked him down once more, before anyone had drawn a breath. "'Here, belay that,' roared Wicks, leaping to his feet. "'I won't have none of this.' Mac turned to the captain with ready civility. "'I only wanted to learn him manners,' said he. "'He took and called me Irishman.' "'Did he?' said Wicks. "'Oh, that's a different story.' "'What made you do it, you tomfool?' "'You ain't big enough to call any man that.' "'I didn't call him it,' sputtered Hemstead, "'through his blood and tears. "'I only mentioned like he was.' "'Well, let's have no more of it,' said Wicks. "'But you are Irish, ain't you?' Carthew asked of his new shipmate shortly after. I may be, replied Mac, but I'll allow no Sydney Duck to call me so. No, he added, with a sudden heated countenance, nor any Britisher that walks. Why, look here, he went on, you're a young swell, aren't you? Suppose I called you that. I'll show you, you would say, and turn to and take it out of me straight. On the 28th of January, when in latitude 27 degrees, 20 degrees north, longitude 177 degrees west, the wind chopped suddenly into the west, not very strong, but puffy and with flaws of rain. The captain, eager for easting, made a fair wind of it and guide the booms out wing and wing. It was Tommy's trick at the wheel, and as it was within half an hour of the relief, seven thirty in the morning, the captain judged it not worth while to change him. The puffs were heavy but short, there was nothing to be called a squall, no danger to the ship, and scarce more than usual to the doubtful spars. All hands were on deck in their oilskins, expecting breakfast the galley smoked the ship smelt of coffee all were in good humour to be speeding eastward at full nine when the rotten foresail tore suddenly between two cloths and then split to either hand it was for all the world as though some archangel with a huge sword had slashed it with the figure of a cross all hands ran to secure the slatting canvas and in a sudden uproar and alert tommy hayden lost his head many of his days have been passed since then in explaining how the thing happened of these explanations it will be sufficient to say that they were all different and none satisfactory and the gross fact remains that the main-boom jibbed carrying away the tackle broke the mainmast some three feet above the deck and whipped it overboard. For near a minute the suspected foremast gallantly resisted, then followed its companion, and by the time the wreck was cleared, of the whole beautiful fabric that enabled them to skim the seas, two ragged stumps remained. End of Part 1 Chapter 23